Hello everybody, Bradley here and welcome back into another episode of Let's Dive Deep. Today we are continuing our deep dive into the first novel of the Bridgerton series called The Duke and I. And in this episode of the podcast, we will be covering chapter number 11. If for whatever strange reason you are here today for the first time, welcome, happy to have you. Just know there will be some adult content, not as much as the last episode. This episode is really the aftermath of some adult content, but just know that you won't want to play this podcast around children. With regard to spoilers, as always, I will be comparing this book to the Netflix adaptation of this series. If you have not watched the two seasons of Bridgerton on Netflix, know that parts of them may be spoiled as you listen to this podcast. And also, I have not read ahead in this book, so I've only read up to the end of chapter 11. Um, so I'm just doing it one chapter, two chapters at a time. So I will not be spoiling the rest of this book for you because I have not read it and I do not know how it goes. And finally, I would super duper appreciate it if you went to wherever you're listening to this this podcast, whatever system it has, stars, bars, you know, written comments sections, wherever you can leave a review, that'd be super helpful. I actually went this week and started reading all the reviews from this podcast since I started it and just had the best time going over all the reviews. And I appreciate them so much. So if you could do that, that'd be great. Feel free to head over to the Facebook group or the Patreon, the Facebook group where you can just hang out with a bunch of cool people, the Patreon where you can, you know, throw a few coins my way for early access to the episodes, help keep the podcast sustainable those types of things. Otherwise, I think it's just time that we dove into this wonderful chapter of this just super fun book. Chapter number 11, another chapter that I really enjoyed reading that is 11 in a row so far. So good job, Julia Quinn. You are holding my attention. This chapter is super fun. This chapter deals with the aftermath of the incident in the garden from the last episode. Y'all are going to be spared the segment Brad reads a sex thing from a Bridgerton novel in this episode because there were no sex things in this episode, just aftermath stuff. And this aftermath was played out, I found, very realistically, very in keeping with the characters as we know them in this novel. And just what, what's so great about the Bridgerton series is, well, Julia Quinn says it's meant to be a Pride and Prejudice analog, which is not a thing that this book accomplishes in any way. What it does do very well is it just creates fun characters. Every character is unique enough that they are fun when you put them in a room together, but not so bland and similar that they you can't tell the difference between them, and but also not so different that they, you wouldn't believe that these people aren't in this society, they aren't in these positions that they fill. And so what Julia Quinn has done really well is develop these just fun characters to be hanging out with. I just enjoy hanging out in a chapter with these characters that she's created. And chapters like this where you kind of put them all together and just let them fry are, are just super fun. This happened uh, in the Greenwich whenever they went to Greenwich earlier in the book too. I really enjoyed that chapter because or the dinner at the Bridgertons because you just have all these fun characters together just being themselves. And I think that's something that this book accomplishes really, really well. My notes are a little bit all over the place and they bounce back and forth, but I had to highlight right at the top the line from Daphne at some point in this chapter. She says, men, idiots all. And you know what? Nothing has changed. Nothing has changed from, from the 1800s. Nothing has changed from when Julia Quinn has written this novel. I don't know when that was. Um, there's six other novels after this. I'm assuming this novel was written a while ago. And up right up until early 2023 when I'm recording this, men, still dumb as hell. Still absolute fucking morons. And so Daphne, early on in history, is onto something here. 
to prove that I've read the reviews, there's a lot of you out there who leave very nice reviews, but sneak into your reviews. Oh, I wish this fucking idiot would just research things. He's recording this on a computer. Why doesn't he just Google shit? It's like, first of all, that's no fun, right? The whole point of this podcast is that I'm an idiot 27-year-old white dude reading the Bridgerton novels and breaking them down. That is the whole point, is that these books were not written for me, the show was not made for me, and here I am in the midst of it just having the best time. That is the whole point of this podcast. But also, if I have to research shit to enjoy your stuff, then that's not helpful. You know what I mean? This book... So this is where I'm getting to. To prove that I read those reviews and I just Googled it instead of leaving you on that cliffhanger, this book was originally published in 2000. So I've answered my own question. Please, you can stop writing your reviews that are mean to me for not Googling things. I'm sorry. I'm sorry about the leading strings. I still don't know what they are. I'm not going to Google them. You're not going to win me over on that one. But I did read all those reviews that were like, why doesn't this guy just Google what these things are? It's because it's more fun to not. Anyways, review Googling tangent aside, knowing that this book was written in 2000 is kind of helpful because it's 23 years since Daphne on the page said that men were dumb and they're still fucking dumb. I don't know if they're more dumb, but they're probably not less dumb. Anyways, I also definitely include myself in that. Don't think I'm one of these people. I'm an idiot. That's all. I'm all in on this thing, including myself. The beginning of this chapter is fun. Anthony and Daphne, I believe, definitely Daphne, but I believe it's Anthony, have to leave the ball early. This thing with uh, Simon happens, they deal with it in the garden, kind of, and they have to leave. And so they get home nice and early. Anthony goes to his study, presumably to plan dual things, but it leaves this fun situation where Daphne is just kind of wondering what the hell is going on. Who is going to come home? When are they going to come home? When they do, she has time to formulate a strategy. When they do come home, she's going to target Colin. Colin is going to, you know, get her the location of the duel so she can stop it. They also avoided traffic on the way to the Trowbridge Ball. There was lots of traffic. And now there's, I guess there's no traffic on the way back. Leading to even more questions. Did the Bridgertons bring two carriages to this ball? If Anthony and Daphne left the ball in the Bridgerton carriage, then how did the other two, how did, you know, Mama Bear... Uh, Violet, uh, Benedict, and Colin get home. Do they have two carriages? Is there a cab system? Are there just random carriages that you are allowed to use? If you're the host of a ball, do you have to provide kind of superfluous, you know, you know, the equivalent of like, you know, how pubs, maybe, maybe this is a Canadian thing. Lots of pubs around where I live. Well, they have a driver. So they have a shuttle that goes every night. And if you're drunk and you drove to the pub, instead of getting you to drive drunk home, because that's very bad, they will just drive you home. It's a free shuttle service that the pubs have. Is that what's happening here? Where if you host a ball, you have to have three carriages on standby to shuttle people home if there's like family ruin happening? I have no idea. But I just find this whole this whole situation of like them getting home, get, getting time to either plan the duel if you're Anthony, plan to talk to Colin, but also just so many thoughts about the cab system in 1810. And, and before you say anything, I will not be Googling this. I am just happy in my head not knowing. Daphne is stuck between a bunch of different things this chapter. Uh, the first thing is she just doesn't want Simon to die. She has correctly identified that what happened does not need to result in someone's death. Now, I don't think if that's how society views it, um, because they either view it as you get killed in the duel or you get married or you're exiled or whatever. Like, there's a lot going on here. 
Um, but Daphne kind of correctly identifies that what happens does not need to result in someone's death. So that's good for Daphne that she's kind of figured that out. And she doesn't really want Simon to die. And so she's going to devise a plan to make sure that at the very least Simon doesn't get fucking killed by her brother, which is great. The problem Daphne has is it's still kind of perplexing why the Duke won't marry her. We as the audience know why the Duke won't marry her, but between Anthony and Daphne, they don't quite know. Anthony, I think, has a pretty good idea, but he's kind of just guessing, I think. And Daphne identifies in a conversation with Colin that there is something wrong. There is something that she doesn't know, and there's a, there's got to be a reason. The reason isn't simply that he just doesn't want to marry me. There's like a deeper meaning there, and Daphne kind of correctly identifies that one exists, but can't quite figure out what it is exactly. And it makes it complicated to try and plan this, this, um, this, you know, heroic moment for her when she doesn't know exactly what it is that's causing it in the first place. This conversation with Colin that happens is absolutely fantastic. I loved everything about this. You really get a good sense of the brother's dynamic in a family. And I have two brothers. So Gray in this world, Gregory exists, but even in my world, I have two younger brothers. And so this this Anthony Benedict Colin, this Anthony Benedict Colin kind of setup here, their their relationships with each other, how they work in their kind of family dynamic, feels really authentic to me. The way it works in this chapter, and the way it's worked for most of the book is that Anthony as the oldest, the one with all the responsibility, is way more prickly. He's doing his best to, you know, keep Daphne's honor and his family's honor and whatever within this stupid societal system that they have. And he's doing his best. He's maybe not the best equipped to do it, but he's trying his best to be the Viscount of whatever, you know, estate that they have. Benedict is similar to Anthony in a lot of ways, right? He's kind of second in line. He still has to have his eyes on the ball. He's a bit of a wild card. There's lots of people in this chapter that are kind of like, Benedict might agree with Anthony, right? He might side with Anthony. There was a moment earlier in the book, I can't remember exactly what it was, but I remember, I remember being surprised, like, oh shit, yeah, Benedict is with Anthony on this one. That's interesting. But Colin, as the youngest brother, you know, really far away from the direct responsibility, much closer to Daphne in age, because it goes like they're, they're, they are ordered in terms of how old they are, like Anthony A, Benedict B, Colin C, Daphne D. So Colin and Daphne, Colin's just a little bit older, but much closer in age. Uh, she correctly identifies that Colin will understand, but Colin is the perfect younger brother, and it just really felt, you know, the situation is completely fucking bonkers to me, but in terms of, like, the brother and sibling dynamic, I really thought the Colin and Daphne conversation was fantastic. This conversation has a couple of different dynamics going on. Daphne is just trying to get Colin's help. Daphne is trying to like, Colin, you are a brother of this Bridgerton family. You're a, you're a male person. You can go in, you can talk to Benedict, you can talk to Anthony, you're welcome in the room, and you can get me the deets about this duel so I can go and stop it. And Colin is receptive to that idea, I would say. But for Colin, he he's trying to be helpful this is this is really well written. Julia Quinn did a great job because you get this younger brother sense from Colin. He's trying to be helpful. He's trying to emotionally support his sister in some ways, but because of his age or inexperience or just la or this is the way the society kind of doesn't teach him anything, right? Uh, he he can't quite emotionally get it. Like he doesn't quite have the right emotional focus and the emotional 
um, knowledge. What's the word called? The emotional literacy. The emotional literacy is what I'm thinking of to really help her. There are these kind of awkward moments where Colin kind of, you know, mis misplaces a word, misplaces a sentiment. When Daphne says that she loves the Duke, Colin responds with, even though he rejected you, which is interesting, but not really, he's kind of still on the surface. He's not really digging in to what love is. And uh, to be fair, it's 2023 and we have not fucking figured out what love is. No one has any idea. Love has always been this very kind of ethereal, spiritual, undefinable thing that everyone feels and everyone says they feel and everyone uh, feels in similar ways, but is also completely unique to everyone as well. And so it's still this, this undefinable thing. But Colin, you can see, is just emotionally scratching the surface. To him, like A plus B has to equal C. Like, you feel a way about this person, but that person rejected you, so you, then you must instantly stop feeling that way about them. It's just so emotionally simplified in terms of how this works. But I would also argue that Daphne doesn't have the literacy to know really what love is either, right? Because in this world, you might fall in love with someone just for simply treating you well, right? So like, what what is definable love and what is just relative, right? If everyone If everyone treats you like shit, and someone comes along, super handsome, charming Duke, who laughs at your jokes and, you know, um, you know, kisses your hand and takes you into the gardens and whatever. Like, well, you know, you're kind of into it, right? You might fall in love with this person. Maybe this person is, is, uh, has some other things going on, but you can see how Daphne, with the perspective she has and with how she's treated by Simon, would certainly fall in love with him, even though she might not have all of the tools the society certainly doesn't give her any of the tools to really know exactly how she feels and so i, I like this dynamic between her and colin kind of trying to figure out how how she feels about the situation because it felt really true to not only their characters but their places in society and the kind of knowledge and emotional literacy that they would realistically have they eventually come around at the end of this conversation having a really nice moment where Daphne's kind of crying into his shoulder and stuff. And I, you know what? I just love that. That was fantastic. But there, there's still more to digest here. This tries to dig a little bit deeper. Um, Colin is asking the questions that are going to set Daphne off a little bit that are maybe possibly not worth asking or not appropriate to ask, but I can see how Colin feels like they're worth asking he kind of asks these questions like is it that you don't want simon to die or that you don't want him to die on your account which is a very interesting question because those are very very different things right i'm currently recording this recency bias is a thing i'm currently recording this at the same time that the last of us airs so i won't spoil anything for the last of us if you have not played the game or watched the show so far but in episode two there is an argument between some characters where one of the characters uh, believes that another character is going to die, right? And that in this situation, that they will have to be the one to kill them. And so two of the characters start talking about this. And the one character who believes that they'll have to kill the one that needs to die says like, you know, why are they here? Send them back to where they came from. And then someone chimes in with, well, they'll just, they're just going to die there. And then the first character goes, well, it's better them than us. So just recently kind of in pop culture, there are these thoughts like, 
like, if this person needs to die, that's one thing. But I also, I don't mind. I just don't want to do it. So there is this level. There is, it's a reasonable question insofar as that people feel that way all the time. People feel much differently about things when they're not involved with it, when it doesn't affect them. And then all of a sudden, when it does affect them, right, then their opinions on it change, right? This makes sense. Not every person has the emotional capacity or the, the, the um, circumstances to have, you know, full knowledge about every problem and situation and feeling that's happening in the world. So it makes perfect sense that people will focus on and be more knowledgeable about and be more in, invested in those things that affect them. That makes perfect sense. And so I liked this question from Colin, not because I think it's appropriate. I think Daphne has kind of said that she loves him and that she, she doesn't want him to die separate from on her account. Like, I think this is, she doesn't want him to die, period. So it's a rude question in that sense. But it's not in the sense that I like that Colin's trying to dig a little bit deeper. Like, how do you really feel? Right? How is it you like dig like on the first layer, you don't want him to die, which, you know, I think in this conversation, because it's so extreme, right, you can just kind of end it there. But digging a little bit deeper, and, and, you know, asking those questions, I think is a super fun way to not only bring Colin and Daphne together, but oftentimes in these types of books, you kind of you're like Colin, you kind of hover on the surface of emotionality. There are a few books I've read recently that I really enjoyed that I don't know if I'd recommend to people if they're looking for a very deep read. The Midnight Library by Matt Haig was a book that I just finished recently that I really enjoyed and I would recommend to people if I knew what they were asking for. But it's really a book that just kind of stays right on the surface of the message it's trying to tell you, right? There's a message it's trying to get across. The book has a very like, a very, I'm going to say, you know, heartfelt and, and prevalent and meaningful theme that kind of runs straight through it, but it's right on the surface and it doesn't ever try to dig deeper into that emotion, into that feeling. And I like that Colin, unsuccessfully here, but I like that Colin is at least trying to just dig deeper into the feelings and the emotions of Daphne, our protagonist. And this this is a very long-winded way of saying that I really like this conversation. <laughs> uh, but yeah, like I just, there's something about trying to dig deeper into surface level obvious emotions that I always I always respect in a in a piece of literature. Daphne also gives us the iconic line. <laughs> For the love of God, a man is going to die tomorrow. I'm entitled to be a little upset. Just <laughs> there are very few lines that I flag. I'm like, I need to I need to put that line in my notes. That's got to make the podcast. But that, that line gave me a good chuckle. This this book is full of so much humor. There are there are funny moments and then there are lines that are just funny. And that was fantastic. Colin is successful in his espionage mission. That was a hard phrase, espionage mission. I'm gonna try never to say those two words back to back ever again, but now that I have, Colin was successful in that mission. He finds the location of the duel. I like how they go over the different options in the book. Like, you don't wanna do it in Hyde Park because blah, 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 but you wanna do it in this place right at dawn. You know, people aren't gonna be out yet. What? Like, I just find it interesting that they decided as if it wasn't obvious to the reader. Like, yeah, you don't want to do this in front of parliament or whatever. Like, you don't want to go in front of Buckingham Palace or whatever and just start shooting people. So they went to this corner of this other park that's not the biggest, most popular park where they're sure to be caught. And 
Colin and Daphne, I don't know if they sleep at all. It's not really clear to me whether they actually go to sleep, but I do love that they put on their best riding gear before bed, right? Like they have this conversation, Colin goes, he finds the locale of the duel, he brings it back, and then Daphne and Colin both are like, shit, we gotta be ready to go at any time. You know, the, the birds are gonna start chirping, we gotta get on our horse and start riding. And so, they have to sleep, I guess, in their riding gear, which I found was a great little touch to this chapter. They arrive at the duel, and the first thing I want to say about the duel sequence overall is that every... What, okay, Julia Quinn writes this very well in the sense that every character just behaves like they would. Right? There's no trickery. There's no tomfoolery. Uh, she's not trying to pull the wool over your eyes. She's not trying to have someone show up at this duel and have like a clairvoyant moment, a, a big character change. Right, Everybody is acting within their capacity as the character as we know them from what we understand of this bonkers society in the Regency era. Uh, she's not trying to trick you. Right, She's not trying to say, like, oh shit, like... Simon's gonna get out of this because Anthony's all of a sudden gonna have a change like that's not what's happening here And I just appreciated that She has her characters and those characters are fun to be around, but they are those characters They're not gonna just have these big change of hearts all of a sudden, right? I'm sure there's an arc somewhere in this book, but in, in a scene-by-scene -scene basis There's a lot of character consistency, which I really enjoyed in the writing of the dual sequence and this good character writing kind of shows itself in a bunch of interesting ways. Like, so we get to this duel and Simon shows up without a second because of course he shows up without it. Why would he bring a second? He knows he's not going to shoot Anthony. Everyone knows he's not. Like, even Daphne's like, ah, Simon's not going to shoot Anthony. That's why I got to save him because he's definitely going to die. He's not going to shoot Anthony. Anthony's definitely going to shoot him. If not because he wants to because of the honor involved. He's not going to intentionally miss Right? And so there's a good chance Simon just gets killed. So why bring a second? What the fuck's the point? Like, it doesn't matter. Like, and so Anthony's like, well, who's going to inspect the guns? And he's like, I trust you, dude. Like, I'm just going to pick one of the guns. Like, it doesn't matter because even if someone inspected mine and it was a fake and you tricked me or whatever, I'm not going to shoot it anyway. So I felt like not bringing a second was a very fun choice because it just, of course, he wouldn't. It's just a, it's such a natural character development choice because we don't get... The rest of the evening from Simon's point of view, really, he kind of just shows up back at the duel. So we don't know what's happened in the intervening time between the garden sequence and the duel. Uh, but you can assume he's thought about the situation and thought, ah, I'm fucked, whatever. I just went and double checked the chapter. Yeah, we don't get anything from Simon in between the duel or in between the... Uh, the garden sequence in the duel. We do get this moment as he's coming up to the duel where he's kind of in his own head explaining that Anthony picked out the park, yada, yada, this, yada, yada, that. Um, but he does have that moment where he's like, yeah, I don't really care that duels are illegal because I'm not going to be around to, you know, deal with the legal consequences of the duel. So he he is fully said, like, I'm just going to get shot here. This sucks <laughs> or whatever. And so I'm just not going to bring a second. So great, great fun choice there. And Anthony, of course, because he's kind of, he says, obviously it's a little bit interesting when it's your sister, but he says he's kind of doing this for honor. That is the backbone, that is the spine of, of the reasoning as to why he's having this duel. And so I think he's a little bit affronted. They're like, oh, Simon's not honoring the rules here. Like, you're meant to have a second. You have to have a second, right? And so Anthony can't quite believe that Simon didn't bring one. Again, these two characters really acting like you believe that they would. Just as the duel is about to commence, uh, we get a giant wait from Daphne in the distance, and she rides up with Colin. Not quite as uh, not quite as uh, drastic as in the show, where they're literally about to shoot each other. 
Um, but Daphne shows up, and because it's because it's a Bridgerton novel, it's not it's not completely devoid of very uh, weird writing. There's this there's this line where Daphne yells, "Wait!" And then you can almost like add the add the audience sound effect from like a sitcom, like the <gasps> because it says Simon gasped and whirled around. Dear God, it was Daphne. It's like, okay, Julia Quinn, calm it down. Oh, calm it down. There's the, there's 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 still these sequences. The writing in this chapter is very good, but there's still these sequences really like, okay. This is still a Bridgerton novel. You know, this wasn't this wasn't edited in such a way to to be a literary masterpiece. We're still gonna get the Simon gasp and whirled around, dear God, and Daphne jumps off. He almost it was like a wrestling introduction, and Daphne jumped off the top rope of the Hell in the Cell down onto the. So, oh, I love that line so much. Daphne is there to save Simon's life, which we're gonna talk about in a second, and kind of how she goes about that. But there is this hilarious moment where someone pipes up. I think probably Daphne pipes up. And he's like, and what, should I have just stayed home? And every every single person there, this might be Colin being like, what, should I just have let her stayed home? Uh, one of either Daphne or Colin pipes up and everyone else just says, yes, absolutely, fucking idiot. It was so good. Such a good line. Had me in stitches. Just, I, love, I love a bunch of characters that are about to shoot each other, have a moment of like, of um communal like understanding of the structure of this world like yeah what the fuck like of course she was not meant to be here you fucking dipshit like it's so good absolutely good the way daphne goes about talking to simon though is fantastic as well this whole chapter has had an undercurrent to it where we're trying to figure out who knows what and i thought it was best to talk about this here it was happening through the whole chapter though um, you know, which characters saw them go into the garden? What and, and like what not only which characters saw them, what did they see, right, before, during, after, and what are they gonna do with that information? Not necessarily an issue that someone saw them, but if it's the wrong person or someone who might say something, what is that going to mean? And how long does that mean they have? If they start spreading rumors of what happened, if they find out, if society finds out and they're already not betrothed or married, it's gonna be a huge problem for Daphne and for Simon, but Simon's gonna get shot here, so it doesn't matter, right? And, and so there's this fun calculation that's happening where it's like, okay, the family didn't get run out of the Trowbridge ball in disgrace. Like Mama Bridgerton isn't disgraced at home, which means whoever did see, if anyone did, is not spreading it around the ball quickly and it also gives us a little bit of information on some other characters like we get a little bit about lady danbury being like oh yeah lady danbury probably saw something but she's like something like a lion or whatever they describe her in some fun way like a lion and she's gonna she's gonna keep that information she's just not gonna throw it around willy-nilly ruining people's lives for no reason right she's gonna hold on to it until you know she can use it for something which i just you get this cool characterization of these people who may or may not have found out but Daphne starts to use that, I'm gonna say rightfully so, I think it's a genuine concern, but also probably the best way to open up Simon, because Daphne's going in having no idea what it is, the reason that Simon won't marry her. She just has kind of sussed out that there is a reason beyond just he can't marry me. There's a deeper meaning, a deeper, you know, calculation happening there. And so the way she goes about it is not, don't do this for you. Right, don't do this to save yourself. Don't do this because you don't like, if you want to get shot from Anthony, that's fucking great, dude. You do you, right? But no matter how you feel about this, 
you need to do it to save me because now I'm fucked and I don't believe that you would want to get killed in a duel and leave me to, what does she say? Never be married, never have children, never have, uh, never have any prospects, be disgraced from society. She really lays it out. She's like, dude, we went into that garden and we did this thing. If it were just Anthony that had seen us, we could sort this out with his duel, but that's not what happened. We can confirm that other people saw us. Who knows what they saw? Who knows how they're going to use that information? But if that starts spreading around and you and I are not already betrothed or married or whatever it is, then I am fucked, good sir. My prospects, my reputation, my standing in society are absolutely, just absolutely fucked. And I don't believe that you would allow that to happen. However you feel about me, whatever the reason that is, I believe that you love me, like me, enjoy my company, whatever, enough to not want that to happen, to not allow that to happen so you can fulfill some weird, I guess we know it's a grudge, but whatever your weird feeling is as to why you won't marry me. So I thought it was a very compelling argument. Maybe I'm overselling it or underselling it or misremembering it a little bit because I read this chapter last night and I'm recording this at like one o'clock the next day. But what I enjoyed was I think Daphne, she's very perceptive. She's very smart. This is a different Daphne than the show. This Daphne is kind of presented to us as someone who is kind of quietly beautiful, a little more humble, kind of runs around the edges of society, doesn't just show up as the hottest fucking greatest diamond of the first water or whatever, right? She she didn't have a ton of prospects, you know, really until the Duke came around and then everyone started liking her. And so this version of Daphne is very smart, very perceptive, very very thoughtful, uh, very kind of in tune with people's emotion, kind of ahead of her time in that way, in a realistic way. And I thought all of those bits of her character, this is kind of the writing I was talking about. This version of Daphne would have sussed the strategy out. This version of Daphne would have believed that it would work. And I, as the reader, believed that it was going to work as well. And I know, I know how this story goes because I have watched the show. So I know roughly where the main beats were going to hit. So I knew Simon wasn't going to get killed in this duel, right? But it was very compelling to me, this argument that Daphne comes up with. Like, feel how you fucking feel. I, whatever. But I know what you don't feel is that you want me to be fucked for the rest of my life over this. So you're going to need to help me out here. Since we can't have a segment of Brad Reads a Sex Thing from a Bridgerton novel in this podcast, let's have a segment of Brad Reads the End of This Chapter with Diamond and Safney. Diamond and Safney. <laughs> Simon and Daphne. I'm keeping that in. I'm not editing that out. Not at all. Here we go. Here is the end of that chapter. Daphne convincing Simon. If you don't marry me, she said in a low voice, I will be ruined. That's not true. But his voice lacked conviction. It is true and you know it. She forced her eyes to meet his. Her entire future and his life was riding on this moment. She couldn't afford to falter. No one will have me. I shall be packed away to some godforsaken corner of the country. You know your mother would never send you away. But I will never marry. You know that. She took a step forward, forcing him to acknowledge her nearness. I will be forever branded as used goods. I'll never have a husband, never bear children. Stop! Simon fair, fairly yelled. For the love of God, just stop. Anthony, Benedict, and Colin all started at his shout, but Daphne's frantic shake of her head kept them in their places. Why can't you marry me? She asked in a low voice. 
I know you care for me. What is it? Simon wrapped his hand across his face, his thumb and forefinger pressing mercilessly into his temples. Christ, he had a headache. Fair enough, Simon. And Daphne, dear God, she kept moving closer. She reached out and touched his shoulder, then his cheek. He wasn't strong enough. Dear God, he wasn't going to be strong enough. Simon, she pleaded, save me. And he was lost. Fucking so good. Did you not get right? That was a bad audiobook reader's impression of how that scene played out. I got into the voices a little bit at the end. At the beginning, I wasn't really into it. But at the end, I kind of got into the voices. For those of you who don't know, I did a lot of acting as a child. I love improv. So maybe I'll do more like audiobook kind of things where I read parts of these chapters and like pick some voices for the characters and like little bit. Anyways, doesn't matter. That's a separate thing for a separate day. The whole end of the chapter I found very compelling, very in keeping with uh, Daphne and Simon as characters. And it's it, you, we don't know. We don't know. You know, I, I assume that things are going to be okay here. And uh, uh, Simon is not going to get murdered at this duel. But we don't know what happens. We kind of leave this chapter knowing that he is lost. Now, before I end this deep dive, I actually want to talk about the show a little bit. I kind of saved this segment for the end because this is the first time I read the book. And I really enjoyed what was in the book. And I think in some ways what was in the book was more compelling than what was in the show for this sequence. However, this was the first sequence where I think I really appreciated how the show did it. And I'm not sure if it's more or less than I appreciate the book. One doesn't necessarily have to be better than the other. I think as a society, we get caught in these A-B comparisons all the time where it two, if there's two things, one of them just has to be better or worse than the other. And then uh, the better thing has to be the best thing ever. And the worst thing has to be the worst thing ever. So I don't want to get into like an argument over emails. Like, did you prefer this version better or the show version better? But I didn't want to talk about some of the things I enjoyed in the show version of this sequence. That way, if you're listening to this and you haven't watched the show, maybe you'll go give it a shot. It's great. I enjoyed that we got that bit with Simon and Will. And I, I haven't watched Bridgerton season one in a long time. So this is my vague recollection of this sequence. There was a moment between Simon and Will where he shows up in between when the garden sequence happens and the duel. And we get what happens to him that night, right? We get to go. He's having a few whiskeys. He's talking to Will. And I think just giving us that little bit of extra with, with Simon I thought was very, very nice. And I also enjoyed in the show, there's a little bit more of a frantic pace to the early part of the sequence, right? In this sequence, in the book, it's more calculated. Like Daphne and Colin have figured out the information they need. They're going to get the their riding gear on. They're going to be ready to go and they're going to get there right on time. And I think it works for the novel, and I think it really works for how good that Colin and Daphne conversation was. But in the show, I really enjoyed the frantic pace by which Daphne was trying to get there, not really knowing exactly where it was going to be, if I'm remembering this correctly, and having to get there right on time, and then truly having to stop the duel in the middle. They had already walked their paces. They were, I, I was singing 10 Duel Commandments from Hamilton in my head. And they were about to shoot. Well, Simon or Anthony was about to shoot. And she has to interrupt them like mid-shot. I just felt added a really nice bit of pace and energy to it that maybe you need more in a TV show. But I just wanted to call this out. And uh, 
for the first 10 chapters of the book, I've kind of been pretty mum on book to show comparisons because I think they've followed a similar track, but within their mediums really well. This was the first time where I think they kind of took two different approaches to get to the same thing. And I think both were done well, but I did just want to talk about the things I appreciated about this sequence in the show. If you want to, if you want to know what I thought about that episode, solo deep dive in this feed, just scroll back to when I did Bridgerton season one, it'll be there for you to enjoy. And I, I, I do hope you enjoy it. I also just want to call out because I forgot to mention it. That there's a moment in this chapter where Daphne fucking hits Simon and it's so funny and it's so good. And I don't want to endorse any kind of violence against anyone. No one should hit anybody. No hitting. But within the circumstances of this book, I did enjoy reading about Daphne going and just whopping Simon in the face. That was that was good. As is our new tradition in the Bridgerton Deep Dive, a tradition I wish I'd figured out earlier, but we're here now. You know, we can't we can't make up for past mistakes on a podcast that's already recorded. We are going to read the Lady Whistledown bit for chapter number 12. A duel, a duel, a duel. Is there anything more exciting, more romantic, or more utterly moronic? It has reached this author's ears that a duel took place earlier this week in Regent's Park. Because dueling is illegal, this author shall not reveal the names of the perpetrators. But let it be known that this author frowns heavily upon such violence. Of course, as this issue goes to press, it appears that the two dueling idiots, I am loath to call them gentlemen, that would apply, that would imply a certain degree of intelligence, a quality which, if they ever possessed it, clearly eluded them that morning, are both unharmed. One wonders if perhaps an angel of sensibility and rationality smiled down upon them that fateful morn. If so, it is the belief of this author that this angel ought to shed her influence on a great many more men of the ton. Such an action can only make for a more peaceful and amiable environment, leading to a vast improvement of our world. Very, very, uh, what's Daphne's line at the beginning of this chapter? Men, idiots all. Very men, idiots all of Lady Whistle down there. That is it for this deep dive. I am excited for chapter number 12. If you enjoyed that, leave those reviews. Head to the links in the show notes below. Go to the Facebook group. Check out the Patreon. I don't want to, I don't want to like ask for your money, but if you do have a few extra bucks and you're enjoying the podcast, you know, I am able to, to do some upgrades with the money and I appreciate it. So Patreon's there if you want early access to all of these episodes. Be sure to hit us up on Twitter. There's all those kinds of things in there. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this and I will see you in the next one.